Our Old Testament reading this morning, which is also the sermon text, comes from the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes. That book comes right after the book of Proverbs in your Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And I'll begin reading at verse 9. Ecclesiastes 12, beginning at verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Please remain standing. For the New Testament reading, it comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 14. We'll begin reading at verse 15 to the end of the chapter. I'm sorry, John, chapter 14, beginning at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest, my, manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, 
so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let us pray. Enough is enough. That's a phrase we use sometimes, but enough really should be enough. One of the things that marked the leadership of Winston Churchill is said that he knew when he had just enough consensus to move forward. In a time of World War II, it was not a time to try to pacify every person's conscience in the room. It was a time of action. But he knew when he had just enough to, to go forward and make the next step. It's one of the things that made him a great, a great leader. In Wendell Berry's novel, Remembering, there is a, a farmer. He's out driving in the country. He's a high-tech farmer. He has thousands and thousands of acres, and he lands upon this, this plot that's being farmed by, a, by an Amish farmer who's literally driving two ox and pulling a plow. He's amazed, and he, he watches this man do this, and he says, how much land do you have? And he's horrified to hear just how little land this man has, and he expresses it, but the farmer says, a man should work no more land than he ought. He's saying there's a point when, when it's enough. You've probably heard the phrase, enough is as good as a feast. You know who said that, but it wasn't Mary Poppins the first one to say that. But it's another statement, another way of saying that enough really should be enough. And our author here in this text is telling us something similar. How much revelation of God do you need? There comes a point when I've given to you enough. That's part of this point this morning. As we look at these closing verses uh, in this amazing book, we're going to take them in three sections. Verses 9 through 10, I would call those wise words. Verses 11 through 12, sufficient words, enough words. And then verses 13 to 14, the end of words. So again, wise words, verses 9 through 10. Sufficient words, verses 11 through 12. And the end of words, verses 13 through 14. Then I'll have a final word for us. He says the preacher is wise. We know this already. If you've read this book, if you, when you Pastor Kiel preached it, you, you recognize this. This is why we call it wisdom literature, but it's packed with with wisdom, but he's saying more than that, that this preacher is not just wise, but he cares. That he, he taught the people with knowledge with great care. In other words, the, the wisdom that we have in this book, this display of these rich treasures, was for their benefit. He wrote these things for the benefit of, of those that would hear these words, those that would read these words. Now, that's not the way everybody operates. Some people display their brilliance simply to show off. Some of you know that Rachmaninoff wrote three piano concertos. The third, the rock, the rack, is considered one of the most difficult piano pieces to ever play. And that the reason that Rachmaninoff wrote that piece in particular was not for the beauty of the piece, but basically to showcase his skills, not as a composer, but as an artist. He wanted to show off. Our preacher is not this way. He's passing along his wisdom, this acquired knowledge that he has gained to, to share and to help. That's why it says that when he put together these, these proverbs, he, he weighed them. He was pondering them, their content. He studied them. That is to say, he examined them. But most important of all, we could say, possibly, is that he arranged them. In other words, he put them in a particular sequence or a particular order. And arranging, putting things in order... That is a, a hallmark of wisdom. 
It requires additional insight than simply just recognizing something or seeing it. But how do we put this in relation to other things? Uh, Willa Cather, in, in her book, Death Comes for the Archbishop, has this Spanish priest looking to a cardinal for another priest. And so he says in the company of a German archbishop and, and a French archbishop, he says, well, I suppose you'll be wanting a French one, not a German one. And the German archbishop is scandalized, offended. And he says, no, no, no. He said, the Germans classify, but the French arrange. That's probably a racist comment, but Willa Cather said it, I did it. Um, but the point is, is that it takes additional wisdom to put things in the right order. How do we classify these things? And that's exactly what this author did. He was thoughtful. He was attentive about this, to great care in how he put this together. And that's why he sought to find words of delight, he says in verse 10. And what he means by this is, is words that are not just beautiful in their form or just pleasing to the ear, but words that are truly valuable, that are desirable, helpful, crucial words, words that transcend the art of their, of their form. These are words that ring with meaning. They have depth and, and significance. These are, are useful words because they're words of truth. They're words of truth. Now, the word for truth here means faithful. It's the same word from which we get our word amen. So when God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, he proclaimed his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the word here. These are words that are faithful. They're trustworthy. They're sure. They're dependable. We kind of count on Ecclesiastes for that, that the words of, of this preacher in this book, they're, they're blunt, they're honest. He gives, us to it, gives it to us straight. We depend upon him uh, to give us this hard-hitting truth. And so what he's saying, again, here is that there's tremendous character that lies behind these words that he's given to us in this whole book. As he reflects upon all of it, that every letter in this book has the fragrance of integrity. These words are to be prized. These are words to live by. Or to put it another way, you could stake your life on these words because they're true. They're faithful. But they're also sufficient. This is what he picks up in verses 11 and 12. Because they're words of truth, he says, these words are going to hurt. They're going to prick you. They sting like a goad. Now, what is a goad? A goad is a piece of, of wood with nails in it. It might be placed behind uh, the oxen or the sheep in order, if they kick against it, it will hurt them. It will motivate them to, to go or to go a certain direction. It can even be nails on a stick that you hold in your hand. Think of the modern-day cattle prod. The cattle prods we used in the feedlots in, in Nebraska were about this long. They had two probes on the end. You pushed a button, it delivered electric shock uh, to the, the heifer, the steer, which was amazingly motivational uh, to them, sometimes used more aggressively than they needed to be. But the point is that it moved, and it moved them because it hurt. And he said, that's the way the truth is. The truth doesn't always come in feeling warm. It's not always affirming. It hurts. It stings. It's like a, a hot coal taken from the altar. It's going to, to burn you. It's not going to come to you always like sweet drops of comfort. Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy 4 when he reflects upon all, 2 Timothy 3. And he says all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful. It's very, very practical. 
Why? Because it rebukes you. It corrects you. It's the nature of truth. And we don't like hearing the truth. We don't like hearing that we've been proud or conceited, that what we said was self-indulgent and selfish, that we've been rude or that we're lazy or worldly. Nobody likes to hear those things. And who likes to hear that our life under the sun is, is vanity? Maybe the chief message of this book. Who wants to hear that death is inevitable and you're not living properly until you're thinking about death and factoring that into your, to your life? Not everybody enjoys hearing those messages. And so Paul warns Timothy as well in 2 Timothy 4. A time is coming when people will gather around them what their itching ears want to hear. People who tell them only what they want to hear, not to hear the truth. But true words check us. It's that word of truth that will stop you in your tracks. It's the truth that, that governs you, that, that reigns you in, that keeps you from straying or from wandering or from lying to yourself. So we need to hear these words. They may hurt, but they probably will save your life. And since he's talking about a goad, which could be used for oxen, cattle, or for sheep, notice he says, because this is given by a shepherd. A one shepherd. Perhaps the one shepherd is, is an allusion to divinity, that speaking of God as a shepherd, as God calls himself in Psalm 80, verse 1, the shepherd of Israel, or Isaiah 40, that he tends the flock like a shepherd. And think of that imagery for a second. It's the shepherd who knows what he's doing. It's the shepherd who knows where the sheep need to go to find pasture or to find water. He knows where the valleys are to find relief from the hot sun. It's the shepherd who knows that. So, of course, the point is that this teacher knows the truth. He knows exactly what will you do the most good. He knows what will help you, even if it hurts at the beginning. He knows what will strengthen you, what will nurture your faith, what will encourage you in your hope, what will help you in your obedience. These words are true. But then he says in verse 12, these words are enough. They're sufficient. And you're saying, where do you see that? See it in this phrase, beware of anything beyond these. And what he's saying, if, if we compile the points he's making, if, if the words I, I've spoken to you are true, if the words that the preacher have given to you are, are wise, why would you go anywhere else? Why would you look elsewhere? How much more do you need than what's been given to you here? This is enough. And he says, yeah, you can go out and read every teacher. There's no end of books. You can travel through and study every school of thought. So that's weary. But what the preacher has given to you are words of wisdom. Words that have been weighed, studied, arranged by an author who sought to do what would help you. He gave you the truth. He gave it to you straight. He pursued all the hard questions for you. So if the truth is here, if wisdom is, is right here in front of you, why would you look Elsewhere, this is enough. And you see, it raises the question, why do people turn to other sources? That's because of what he said. The truth is painful. It's too painful. And people are tempted to think, I need to go look somewhere else. I need something else. And Paul warns of this in 2 Timothy 3, those people always searching, always searching, but they never are arriving at the truth. 
Somebody has said this, that in the music industry, it's cool to be searching for God, but it's never cool to find him. It's never cool to land upon the truth. We're always tempted to think, I need something more. Think of Adam and Eve placed in the Garden of Eden. They had literally everything they needed, but they wanted something more. They wanted more knowledge. The Bible is filled with truth. God offers not just truth, but but answers. But people go online and search for the meaning of their life. They'll listen to the words of a stranger. They'll go look at some self-appointed guru. We should listen to the wisdom of Abraham Lincoln, who said, you cannot trust everything you read on the Internet. We come to the end of the Gospel of John. It's interesting how it ends. He makes exactly the same point. He says, if we record everything Jesus did, every miracle, every saying, all the books in the world cannot contain it. But what is written here in this Gospel is enough. I've written these things that you might believe in Jesus Christ and by believing in his name that you have eternal life. There's enough right here. Why would you go anywhere else? The same point, really, that our author is making here. Well, the end of the matter is found in this last section, verses 13 through 14. 12 is not the end. But he said, when it's all said and done, here's the end of the matter. It's like he's saying the defense rests. And this is my final statement. Everything worth listening to has already been heard. The end of the matter is here. Literally, he says, the end of words. You don't need to read another word. You don't need to study anything else. You don't need to hear anything else. Here's the conclusion. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God. Fearing God is having regard for for who God is. And what he commands, as he he expressed his perfect moral will, it's the fear of that, to understand that and appreciate it for what it is. And that fear is seen in, in worship. It is seen in love. It's seen in humbly bowing before him. It's seen in obedience. That's a sign of, of wisdom. And God says in Exodus 20 that he shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me, he says, and keep my commandments. Who love me. And keep my commandments. Perhaps you love me by keeping my commandments. But this obedience flows from a willing spirit that's ready to do what God requires, who loves him and wants to to please him. And our author says this is the whole duty of man. This sums up everything. It kind of neatly and crisply comprehends all that you need to understand. This is it right here. That's why he said in verse 12, beware of going beyond this. This is all you need to know. Be content with it. Deuteronomy 29, 29 was one of those passages Calvin loved to quote in the Institutes, which says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things, those belong to us and our children that we might obey them. And put that in the context of this book. It's saying those secret things of God, don't worry about that. Don't think about that. Don't go looking into that. But these revealed things, yes, this is what you ought to be concerned about. Why? that you should obey them. That God's more will is, is found here. And in fact, it, it's summarized in the Ten Commandments, literally the ten words of God. God spoke all these words. There's no reason to look elsewhere. 
This is enough. It's a word from God. Think of the Assyrian general, Naaman, who came to Elisha to be healed from his leprosy. And what did the prophet tell him? Go and dip in the Jordan River several times. You'll, you'll be clean. The Assyrian general was offended. So they thought for sure he would say some magic words, wave his hands. And why would I go in that, that dirty river Jordan? We have cleaner rivers, better rivers back home in Damascus. He was offended. He wanted something more. He made a wise servant. And that servant reminded him and said, Did that man not say, wash and be clean? This is a good word. This is enough. It is enough. But he says the end of the matter at the end is that God will bring everything into judgment. Every deed, every secret, whether good or bad, it's going to come under God's scrutiny. And the point there is that those that were not content with the words of the preacher, though those words were wise, though they valued, though they were words of truth, though those words are duty, they wandered away and sought the words of false prophets, words that were not wise, words that were not true, words that were not our duty. There are many books, many people on the Internet that claim to have, have wisdom. They claim to have truth. They claim to have secret knowledge. But the wise person knows the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom keeps God's commandments. It's not complicated. It's not complicated. And yet the truth is it's like a goad. And people are not interested in the truth because it's, it's painful. They want something more. They want something else. You could put it this way. They want anything else, anything else but the truth. Emile Khmer, a Belgian poet, put it this way. When a man ceases to believe in God, he does not believe in nothing. He believes anything. And that's the warning of this book. Why would you go anywhere else? Now, the main point is it's pretty obvious. Our duty is to obey God, is to keep his commands. And we need to be careful not listening to the wrong voices, not chasing down every new idea, every new book, every new internet craze. There's so much out there that can distract us. There's much meaningless information on the web. You could literally make an endless search. This book is timely in that Advice, But we need to appreciate God's commands. And we should appreciate, appreciate them for how, how wise they are, that they're good and they're useful, they're true. We should obey them. In a part because it's our duty. It's our responsibility as creatures before God to humble ourselves, to listen, and to do what he tells us out of humility, out of, out of gratitude. But it should also be our delight, our joy, and our our treasure should be our love. Again, listen to the very simple statement of Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Christ is showing there that there is this inseparable relationship between obeying him and, and loving him. That it's really not true love before God unless it flows into obedience. And it's true, not true obedience unless it flows from love. These two things are meant to, to go together. And, of course, the point that we want to make uh, is that if we're not left to ourselves, 
that it's Christ who enables us by his spirit, as those who have been born again and granted to a new heart, that Christ enables us to obey his commands by the power of his grace and by the working of his spirit in us. But the plain point here is that obedience is the duty of your life. But here is the key question. Will that obedience deliver your life? Obeying God's commands is the right thing to do, but is that your righteousness before God? It's a just thing to obey his righteous commands, but is that how you are justified before God? And we need to be very clear that the answer is no. That we do not trust in our obedience. We need something more solid. For every Christian brother or sister, our life is built upon the solid rock of the obedience of Christ. That's the final word in our salvation. That's our hope. Is It's in Christ who kept God's commands and kept them Perfectly, Christ's life is one of perfect obedience. That's the foundation of our salvation and our hope. And it's because he obeyed the Father, and that obedience led him to the cross where he paid the price and endured the penalty, not just of our sin, but of our disobedience. But the Father loves his Son and was pleased with the obedience of his Son. And he was pleased with him for two reasons, we could say. And the first is because... That obedience of Christ is perfect. It's perfect so that Christ can say this, as we read in John 14. Christ says, Satan has no claim on me. He has no claim on me. And what he's saying is that the devil is that the devil could find nothing to blame in Christ. There's nothing where he can come and exploit it or he can attack. There's no credible slander that he can make against Christ and his obedience. Now, that's not the case when he came and tempted Adam and Eve. He tempted them, and, and he found them to be to be weak. He came to Moses, and he found Moses to be imperfect. He came to David and found David to be vulnerable. That's not how he, what he finds with Christ. He first tried to tempt Christ in the desert to encourage him to renounce his commitment to his humiliation. Not successful. He tempted him through the religious leaders to get Christ to get tripped up in his words. Didn't work there. He comes to Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane to encourage Christ to refuse that cup of bitterness. And he came to Christ in the cross. As people mocked him, said, come down and encourage him to curse his father. But Christ fulfilled all righteousness, and he did it in perfect righteousness. That's the first reason the father loves his son and is pleased with his obedience. But the second reason is because Christ offered that obedience in the true spirit of obedience, in a perfect spirit of obedience, namely from the depths of undying love. Obeying the Father, this is what Christ loved to do. He talked about it. This is what he lived for. This is what he died for. He says, behold, I have come to do your will. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who who sent me. And in the garden, what is he praying? He says, not my will, but, but your will be done. You see, this is the will that was supreme with Christ in his life, in his ministry, 
in his suffering. This is the will that nerved his soul for the suffering that was before him in those horrors upon the cross. This is the will for which he was born and for which he died and was raised again and lives and reigns. This is the rule, we could say, of all of his work. This is the measure of his love. And you see, it's the Father who looks upon that obedience and sees it for what it is. He sees its motives, its perfect zeal, and how it rose from a pure heart. And he sees this love that would obey the Father to the very end. A love so devoted that he would suffer so much for sinners like you and like me. A love that would go to the very end, that would pay any price, that do whatever needed to be done, where nothing could stand in the way of this determination and this undying love, a love that flows from a whole heart. Every meditation, every the depth of every desire, the strength of his will, all of it, utterly devoted to this task. And so the Father cannot help but to look at the obedience of Christ and say, now this is love. This is beautiful. This is done with motives that are clear as crystal, that reflect the glory of God. That there's nothing more sure than this obedience, nothing more clean, nothing more strong, nothing more pleasing. But here's the wonder of the gospel. God looks upon this obedience. He looks upon the merit of this obedience, this obedience of Christ and the merit of this obedience, and he counts it as yours. This is your righteousness. This beautiful, perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ. As we read earlier from Romans 5, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The answer to the simple question is, why does God forgive you of your sins? Why does he accept you? It's because of the obedience of his son. That he accepts not only the obedience of his son, but all who trust in him. My brothers and sisters, God has spoken. He has spoken in Ecclesiastes. He has spoken to us words of wisdom and of truth. And the challenge to you is, will you obey? Will you keep his commands? But God has also spoken in the gospel through the final word of Jesus Christ, who is the truth. And that revelation of Christ is enough. Enough for you to trust in this one who is the answer to the empty way of life. To obey him, whose commandments are not burdensome. Those commands are truth and they are life. Enough for you to love him who loved you in death and loves you still. The obvious question is, why would we look anywhere else but him? Let us pray.